You are listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Good morning. My name is uh, Derek, and uh, my wife, Rhonda, and our family have been a part of the Axis family for about three years now. Uh, recently, we, I completed the um, season three of the PLC. Uh, the Pastoral Leadership Collective, and so it's a real privilege uh, to be able to spend this time with you again. I was able to speak a few weeks ago, and um, and just, again, very humbled um, by this. We are going to continue this morning in the book of Psalms. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, a great book. I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about that. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, we are going to be in Psalm 147. There should be one in the seat back in front of you or one nearby. If you don't have one, um, feel free to keep that as, as our gift to you this morning. So let's pray and, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, you've sent your Son into the world, the Word made flesh, to reveal yourself to us, your children. So send your Holy Spirit upon upon us now so that we may encounter Jesus Christ in the Word which comes from you, for he alone is the author and object of this text and our gracious Redeemer. Oh, that we'd come to know him and to love him more intensely, and so to come to the happiness of your kingdom. Amen. So the word psalms comes from the Greek, meaning uh, poems to be sung to the accompaniment of music. It was really the Septuagint, was, it was the label that they, they gave this collection of hymns. While they're personal, they were originally designed in a liturgical setting. Essentially, they were hymns for God's people to sing and pray together. And as Jason explained a couple weeks ago, we engage the Psalms as uh, poetic descriptions and expressions of real life and theology. They employ figurative and emotional language. You've, if you've read many of them or ever read them, you'll recognize some of that. Some of it is very harsh and, uh, and in fact, things you probably wouldn't say or think was appropriate to say at times. Um, they're just real. Um, and they reflect really the entire span of human feeling and expression. So this doesn't make them less true, just different in the way that we study, interpret, and apply them. But like the rest of Scripture, the words of the Psalms are more than ancient texts to be studied and understood through the lens of some kind of textual criticism. The Psalms stand out among the rest of the Old Testament books in particular. Jesus and the New Testament authors were steeped in the hymns and prayers that make up this book. There are at least 79 direct quotations to the Psalms in the New Testament, a full one-fourth of all the Old Testament quotes found in the New Testament come from this book, and another 333 allusions, four, over 400 references to this book. So we do well to consider them and to immerse ourselves in this book as they did. In fact, during his earthly sojourn, this would have been the prayer book of Jesus himself. And though written by men like David and Asaph and Solomon and Moses and others spanning a period of 1,500 to 500 years before Christ, they're also ultimately about Jesus. So they were the prayer, it was the prayer book of, of Jesus, and, but they were also about him. So as he's praying these words, just kind of get your mind around this. He's in the temple, he's praying the Psalter, and he's hearing him being prayed to and about. Furthermore, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these are the very words of Jesus. 
So he, he prayed these prayers. They were about him, and ultimately, he wrote them. You see, Jesus is the revealed Word of God made flesh. And because of this, the Psalms have given voice to cries for presence and help and comfort and justice and hope for God's people from the time they were written and assembled until now. Rabbis and teachers of the law, along with early Christian fathers and monastics, committed the entire Psalter to memory. Monks and nuns in monasteries in every time zone around the globe recite the Psalms in prayer at least once a week and have done so continually for almost 1,800 years. Just the fact that God has put it in the hearts of men and women to do this over the centuries says something about their importance. So if you haven't figured it out by now, I love this collection of prayers. <laughs> and for over four years, I've made it a practice to pray through and meditate on this entire book every 60 days. Frankly, it's been transformational to discover that all of my anxieties, hurts, longings, desires, needs in prayer are met in God's Word. They've already been written for me and are simply waiting for me to be used by the Spirit to guide me in discovering how glorious Jesus really is. So I highly commend this practice to you. So finally, as we, as we get close to actually unpacking the, the text this morning, I think it's interesting to note that the majority of this hymn book of praise as I mentioned a minute ago, are actually complaints and cries for help from hurting people. So how does the title of Book of Praise make sense? And I think the answer lies maybe in an observation that Eugene Peterson once made. All prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. And that really brings us to our Psalm 147. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to that. It may be on the screen. I didn't get this turned in in time, so it may not be up there. This, uh, this soaring hymn of praise is actually one of the last five psalms in the book that make up part of what's known as the Hallelujah Collection. Uh, so let's read it without further ado. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting or appropriate. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and He binds up their wounds. He determines the number of stars and He gives them all their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble he casts the wicked to the ground. So sing to the Lord with thanksgiving and make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass to grow on the hills. He gives, food to the, uh, he gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. And his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, those who hope in His steadfast love. So praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For He strengthens the bars of your gates and He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out His command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down crystals of ice like 
breadcrumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes the wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. And he has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. So praise can be described as a person's longing for God and for others to be moved with that same desire for God. And right from the outset, we notice that the psalmist not only bookends the psalm with a call for praise, but also he punctuates the glorious activity of God with worship as well. We see it in verse 1, in verse 5, in verse 7, verse 12, verse 20. All throughout, he's coming back to this idea that God is worthy to be praised. It's almost like he's getting caught up in it. And this is why I think ordering our day around prayer, morning and evening, is a worthy practice to embrace because it gives us the opportunity to also bookend our days with praise and to reflect on the activity of God all around us. That being said, I think I see three reasons why praising the Lord is good and fitting, at least three we can kind of pull out and then we'll dig in verse by verse. I think we praise Him because He has revealed Himself, himself to us by His actual name. That's a big deal. We're going to talk about that in a second. But he's real and personal. And we praise him because he's revealed himself to us by what he has done. And everything he does is good and for good, even when it doesn't feel like it. And we can praise him because he has revealed himself to us through his word. And his word is powerful and effective. All right, so verse 1. Praise the Lord for it is good to sing praises to our God for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. So the, the, what we see here is praise the Lord is the Hebrew word hallelujah, which we sang this morning. And um, it's alal, halal, uyah. So the, the yah is Yahweh. means praise the Lord. It's, it's an interesting word though, halal. It's an, it's an, it means to aggressively and confidently extol and commend, even boast in the name of God. Halal is almost always accompanied by a proper name, and obviously in this case, God's name, but we shouldn't miss the fact that this Lord here is all caps Lord. It's Yahweh. It's not his title. It's his identity. God is his title and position in the universe. So how do we know his name? And we know his name because he revealed it to us. He told it to a man standing in the middle of the desert who's seeing things he can't explain and hearing things he doesn't understand. And he says, who, you're telling me to do all of this. Who are you? And he tells a human being his name. All other gods were named by the men who created them. You understand that? There's not another idol or another god, not another person, entity that's pursued that told us who their name was. Only our God. This is astounding. So it's good and it's pleasant, gracious, lovely, and a song of praise is fitting, becoming, appropriate to proclaim the excellence of God. So much so, in fact, that Jesus makes this his first request in his model prayer. Our Father, hallowed be thy name. Father, make your name holy. Be first, be highest, be all that matters. 
And his name can't be first if mine is. That's why the psalmist in one, Psalm 115 says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And this is so much more than singing with the worship team on Sunday morning or uh, as you're listening to Way FM in the car ride. You know, this is, this is in, in, it's our voices, right? Our lives, our motives, our decisions, our thoughts, our actions, even our rest are included in this statement. Romans 12.1 parallels this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy pleasing to God. This is your true and proper praise, worship. This is your praise, where our lives are expected to be in harmony with our voices, our praise being accepted because Christ was accepted on our behalf. From Him and through Him and for Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Verse 2, the Lord builds up Jerusalem, and He gathers the outcasts of Israel. This Lord builds up Jerusalem and gathers the outcasts. As the early church father Augustine said, who is our God that praise should be pleasant to him? Well, this is the God who is the founder and perfecter of our faith in Hebrews 12.2. This is the God who's the designer and builder of a better city in Hebrews 11.10. He makes himself pleasant to us by revealing himself to us thanks to his indescribable condescension. We are born longing to be citizens of the city of God. And yet, tragically, we discover that we too are outcasts. So here's this God who builds up Jerusalem, creates this haven, this place, his abode, and then he gathers the outcasts. I was driven out by my sin nature and my rebellious ways. We're still we have no way back. The city is closed to us, and we don't know what to do. But God, right? That's what the Scripture tells us all the time. This is what the gospel is. But God had compassion on our woeful condition, and He who builds up Jerusalem offers restoration to the fallen by sending Jesus, His Son, to the outcasts as our Redeemer. Romans 5.8 tells us that. God proved his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus put on our nature and mortality and by the shedding of his blood gathered the outcasts of Israel. We are now able to be gathered back to the city of God and to share this good news with those also outside the walls. Verse 3, though, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up the wounds. And this is important because this is the true condition of those whom he gathers. It's all of our stories. We've all been wounded or broken. Pain and sin, shame, guilt, hurt are all companions of fallen people. Think about it. What has broken your heart? What did you carry in here today? A failure, perhaps? A broken relationship? A bad choice? Trauma? Injustice? pressure to perform, succeed. could go on and on. And we may try to deny our brokenness or even let it define us. Sometimes we take either course. But either way, 
It reflects, it affects our relationships, including most importantly, our relationship with God. But the gospel by definition is good news to those who need it most. And in the helplessness and humiliation of our brokenness, the great physician stoops to join us in the same mud and muck. And he wraps the towel around his waist and he treats our wounds and he prepares for us the great and glorious day when those bandages will be fully and finally removed. That's amazing. This is our God, right? So how are our wounds bound? By recognizing our needy state and humbly experiencing Jesus in word and sacrament and community. Listen, if you're brokenhearted this morning, if you're hurting and wounded, if you're lonely or sad, if you're discontented, disappointed, ashamed, grieving, angry, resentful, bound up by a, a need to succeed, insecure, you're who God cares about. And the good news is, I don't think there's anybody in here that doesn't qualify some of that, some category there. So you're, you're the one that matters to him. Your situation matters to him. He gathers, he heals, he nurses our wounds. So now in, in, in verse 4 and 5, the psalmist is going to shift here abruptly from the lowly now to the vault of heaven. He determines the number of the stars and he gives all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The poetry here is unfathomable. There are a hundred billion stars in the galaxy, just in ours, and another hundred billion galaxies beside. This God-deserving of our praise is so great in power. And listen to what he says, that he who determines the number of stars himself cannot be measured. God casts them into the sky by the word of his mouth, names them, but he can't be measured. Job 26, 14 expands on this thought. And he says, but all of these are but the outer fringe of your works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who can understand the thunder of his power? Everything we know about God is the outer fringe, the faintest whisper. So stop and consider this God whose ways are above our ways, whose thoughts above our thoughts. How could we possibly be reconciled to one such as this? And Isaiah 57, 15 gives us a hint. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Why? To revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. So the psalmist is giving us this tour of Yahweh's abode, but even when he draws our attention to the stars, he doesn't stop with a count. It's more personal than that. He knows them by name. And he knows you by name, too. Paul tells us in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in a world of outcasts, we shine like stars in the universe, holding to the word of life. Jesus reminding us that we rejoice that our names are written in heaven. So stay with me. Verse 6, the Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. Humility is the path to being gathered and healed, reconciled to the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence.
through union with Christ and in his suffering and death, we rise. While the fierce and self-confident, independent man will never get off the ground, Mary got it when the full weight of who Jesus was finally and fully dawned on her. In her encounter with Elizabeth, Luke 1, my soul magnifies, praises the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And he has shown strength with his arm and scattered the proud in their conceit. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of the hum of humble estate. He's filled with hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. How many times have I stood arrogantly in his presence? So, verse 7. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass to grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. The word here for seeing is in the imperative. It implies that the hearers of this psalm at this point are compelled to respond. God's doing this. He's this God who builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts. He heals and binds. He creates the stars and names them. He lifts up the humble, all of these things. So what do I, what do, I do? It's my response. Praise. I sing in the only way that makes sense, gratitude and thanksgiving. Why? Because this God provides for his creatures. And he's worthy of our praise for our very existence and sustenance. Back to the model prayer. Jesus himself teaches us to pray for our daily bread to live dependently on him. And you are living in illusion if you think you're not in daily dependence on him. Here we also find an opportunity to mine for a deeper spiritual meaning. It's one of the reasons why the Psalms are fun, because you can explore the edges and dig around and trace some things. So while, so while earlier we could see the stars, now the psalmist covers them with clouds. Think about that. Things aren't always as clear as we think they should be. The truth sometimes, the truth about who God is and we, what He says and what His promises are sometimes get obscured and the path will seem uncertain. The pain can become unbearable. The disappointments can be bitter. And the risk is for us, I think, to think that His goodness somehow is tied to our comfort and ease. But see, the pattern has never been poverty to prosperity, hurt and then health, shame and then self-confidence. The pattern is always hope in the midst of helplessness, faith in the midst of suffering, confidence that a future best awaits us because of Christ. So as outcasts gathered in, we come to realize that it is the clouds that produce the rain that delivers the growth in our lives. The grace he gives to provide the grit needed to persist and endure, producing the faith that we need to believe the work that Jesus has done, even when praise is hard. Even when all you can muster is blessed be the name of the Lord. 
and the leaning in and the pressing on that the grass grows and what is sown can be reaped. Psalm 126 says, go. Those who go out weeping, weeping, carrying the seed will return again, singing with songs of joy, carrying the sheaves. Verse 10, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. So no matter how hard I try, God is not impressed with me. That's a good news, right? <laughs> it takes a lot of pressure off. It's the big lie of moralism or legalism, right? If I'm just good enough, it'll outweigh my mistakes. If I'm just religious enough, my merit will save me. But sometimes we think we can just make it our own way and chart our own course. We tip our hats to God and live like functional atheists, prayerless, in charge. I lived my life like that for many, many years. And these are futile attempts at meeting our deepest need for hope, healing, and happiness. But the Lord, He resists the proud. And that's part of the problem, right? The Lord stiff arms the proud. He resists the self-confident, the self-made, the self-sufficient, the independent. And what do we need? We need grace. So what where is that available? How do I get that? He gives grace to the humble. I must never forget that as an outcast, my effort to return, to be gathered in, was empty and futile, and my efforts remain equally inadequate to keep me gathered in. Humility and dependence delight the Lord. And by grace alone, through faith alone, we are made righteous in Christ, and it pleases Him when we live in remembrance of this truth and in the, immen the immeasurable cost that Jesus paid to redeem us. Charles Spurgeon rightly said, God sees no sin in any one of His people, no iniquity in Jacob, when He looks upon them in Christ. In themselves, He sees nothing but filth and abomination. But in Christ... Nothing but purity and righteousness. But the psalmist says there's more to it. God delights in those who fear Him. And this isn't just reverential awe. This is a motivating fear born of dependence. The writer of Hebrews tells us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. He's not a God we created. Remember, He told us who He was. Even Jesus admonished the crowd to fear the one who could destroy both body and soul in hell. Becky Pippert, who wrote Out of the Salt Shaker, she said, God's wrath is not just a cranky explosion. It's his settled opposition to the cancer of sin that is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. It's scary enough when we get honest with ourselves about how powerless we really are. It's even more scary to realize that I must depend on one who's not messing around. George MacDonald was a 19th century Scottish preacher and was inspired by Brooks last week who uh, was uh, C.S. Lewis. Once he says something, it's just, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the thing, or my daughter would say it's the tea. Uh, so C.S. Lewis said of George MacDonald, I hardly know any other writer who seems closer 
or more continually close to the Spirit of Christ himself. So, let's listen to what McDonald said. C.S. Lewis liked it. I like it. McDonald writes in his sermon, The Fear of God, naturally the first emotion of a man toward the being he calls God, but of whom he knows little, is fear. When it is possible that fear should exist, it is well that it should exist and cause continual uneasiness and to be cast out by nothing less than love. You see, that's the good news about the bad news. God is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. And while we fear a lot of things that are scary, as we should, which of these things would we actually consider hoping for in mercy? Only an outcast gathering, wound-binding God. Yes, it is good to fear God. It is healthy. But what terrifies us about him only makes Jesus that much more glorious. When what Jesus did for us starts to sink in, then this fear gives way to love. And he promised this, right, in Isaiah 41. For I, Yahweh, your God, I grasp you by the right hand. I tell you, do not be afraid. I will help you. So what's our response to this? Verse 12. Praise the Lord. Right? Praise your God, O Zion. Now it's worth noting here that the praise used in this time is different. In fact, it's different than anywhere else in this psalm, and it's only found two other times in the other 149 chapters in this book. It's only found, again, in Psalm 63, 3, in response to his loving kindness being better than life, and in Psalm 117, because of his great love and faithfulness. So the word here is ba, and it means to glory from a position of stillness and rest, a quiet confidence in a victory won. So remember the, early, the earlier version of this word praise is a, is a triumphant, shouting, aggressive praise. This is a different kind of worship, a worship from a place of rest and confidence, stillness. The victory is won. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and hope in His love, so we exhale praise as a sigh of relief. I think the disciples would understand that, could relate to it. Huddled in fear in the upper room, Jesus appears and their terror increases. He declares, peace be unto you, and they worship. It all melts away. Verse 13, for He strengthens the bars of your gates, he blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders, and He fills you with the finest of wheat. These are the things we long for. Security, blessing, peace, contentment, satisfaction. Notice the activity of God described in the context of community. I spent most of my life with barriers up, playing it close to the vest, building my own kingdom, putting up my own defenses, trying to make a family in my image, searching for peace, chasing material things. But verse four, 13 and 14 tells us what the Lord does for his people. No longer outcasts, but citizens of grace. Our God offers an answer to the vanity of our own efforts. The security that is ours in Christ through his atoning sacrifice, the blessing of grace beyond measure, peace with God and others, the bread of life, that never perishes, this is too much. 
So how does this happen? Verse 15. He sends His command to the earth and His Word runs swiftly. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Gospel goes out to all the world. Verse 16. He gives snow like wool. We are dead in our sins. And those stained black through the blood of Christ, we are washed white as snow. He scatters frost like ashes. The ashes of repentance by grace through faith resuscitate our cold, dead hearts. He hurls down crystals of ice like crumbs. The bread of life revives us and sustains us. Who can stand before His cold? Who can resist the Father's election? He sends out His Word and melts them. The Gospel of Christ melts the sinner's heart in tears of repentance. And He makes His wind blow and the waters flow. The Holy Spirit moves in us to be born again by faith. This is His work in us. Listen to Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with anyone born of the Spirit. And this is why praise is fitting. The Father's Word, Jesus, goes out. The Spirit blows over us. And in a cosmic convergence, they melt our frozen hearts and we're transformed. And get this, church, he never stops saving us once the thaw begins. Verse 19, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He's not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. His word is sent, and it's effective. And Jesus is the word. We've been granted citizenship and given a new identity through him. We might ask, well, isn't this psalm about the Jewish people and the nation of Israel? And I would submit to you that God has always had bigger plans. In fact, Psalm 84, we read, Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon, behold, Philistia and Tyre and Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the peoples. This one was born here. The Apostle Peter adds in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 8, You are a chosen people. You. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special possession of God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Why? So that we may declare the praises of Him. So Christian, pray for the faith to believe this more and to rest as outcasts no more in the city of God. Pray to be filled with a fear-becoming love that leads to praise. And it leads us to praise wholeheartedly and joyfully with our life and our lips. And if you're outside, consider this Jesus carefully, please. That the thawing of your heart by the word of Christ and the stirring of the Spirit may lead you to praise the Father as one of the gathered. Think about these things. There's nothing more important than this. This is how one becomes a Christian. 
And so what better response to this God who revealed himself to us by name and deed and word than to bend our knee to Jesus? And for believers who take the name of Christ on our lips, partaking of the Lord's table together is our incredible privilege. It's a moment of thanksgiving and praise referred to by many in the faith as actually the Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving meal. And in this feast, we acknowledge Jesus in the bread as our representative in a new identity, no longer under Adam and the curse of fallen humanity outside the walls, resulting in our eternal death, we now share in a new humanity in Christ, looking forward to the blessing of his coming glorious resurrection, our resurrection in him. We also acknowledge Jesus in the fruit of the vine, in the juice of the wine as our substitute, the wrath absorber for our sins, as he bore the full undiluted wrath of God on our behalf, reconciling our natures back to God and gathering us in through Christ's shed blood. So we come to this moment once again in humility with hearts full of praise, not because we deserve to share in this broken body and shed blood, but because we don't. And yet it's freely offered to us. We don't come because our reconciliation was earned or deserved by us, but because of the amazing grace of God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So come, take, dip, eat, and rejoice receive this grace new this morning. Servers will be on both sides, the podium and a self-service station back here. So marvel in this moment today and let's pray. Father, we confess that all glory belongs to you because in your tender mercy, you gave your only son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption. You are listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.